If you have your Bibles, I do invite you. Um, we're coming almost to the very end. Um, I'm actually going to pick up the last few verses um, as we go into Second Kings, just for a couple chapters. But, but this morning we are um, just wrapping up some loose ends uh, in First Kings, or at least that's what our author is doing. We're looking at a brief summation of Ahab's reign, followed by a relatively brief account of the reign of Jehoshaphat, uh, whose reign in the south, in the southern kingdom of Judah, begins uh, in the fourth year of King Ahab to the north. And as I, as I work through these, you know, these kind of concluding uh, sections, what hit me was just this reflection on what matters. Um, these are kind of like these little brief obituaries, you know, that you have right um, at the end of, of these king's reigns. And as I began to think about that, I think, you know, what are the things that lead to a life well lived? It's really easy for us to be distracted um, by the tyranny of the urgent, to focus on the doing and the accomplishing of things that in the end, um, they're good things, but they're not ultimate things. They're not the most important things. And so every now and then, you know, we need to do a little self-examination. What is it that leads to a life that matters? What kind of legacy do I want to leave when this mortal life comes to an end? As Christians, uh, these questions have to be asked, but they have to be asked from a certain direction. They have to be asked through the lens of God's will and purposes for my life. Because ultimately, the answer to these questions lies in the pursuit of being exactly who God wants us to be, of fulfilling the calling that God has for me, that God has for us. And so this morning, we'll be reflecting on just some of these questions as we um, just travel through what almost are like these kind of throwaway passages, Um, but it turns out that there's a lot of significance here. Would you stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? This is uh, verses 39 through 50. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Sheli. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. There was no king in Edom, a deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go, for the ships were wrecked in Ezion-Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, 
Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Would you bow your heads with me? Lead us, O Lord, in your truth and teach us. Grant that beyond all our faithless expectations and weak desires, we may find you in your word. May we be renewed, strengthened, so that as we go out, we may go rejoicing. Grant this for the sake of the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we saw last time um, in in just the previous passage, Ahab has finally succumbed to the judgment of God. Um, He uh, experienced the judgment of God as he um, was killed um, with this providential arrow in a battle against the Syrians at Ramoth Gilead. The author sums up, um, he closes up this account of Ahab by by summing it up with what looks like a, a brief formality. But in the process, the author is also making a comment. He's making a comment about God's priorities, about what really matters. And so as we come, the key verse for Ahab is just a single verse that that just kind of wraps things up for Ahab in verse 39. And I'll just read it again. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did. Now, Now look what he adds here. The ivory house um, that he built and the cities that he built, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? This book of Chronicles is not the same as the the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles that we have in our Old Testament. So this is a reference to some kind of historical archives uh, that were present at the time in which um, Kings was written. Um, But what's interesting here um, is that apparently... So let's remind ourselves, Ahab reigned for 22 years. It was a a fairly uh, lengthy reign, the fourth longest in the northern kingdom. And um, it was consequential in terms of uh, political and architectural and national achievements. Um, And verse 39 points to this whole, you know, uh, one of the things apparently that Ahab was known for was bringing in ivory, uh, apparently, elephants still roam just to the north of Israel, um, and uh, um, the carving of ivory using ivory for uh, inlays was 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 a luxurious um, uh, treasure. And Ahab went all out in just uh, decorating his palace with ivory, so much so that it became almost proverbial. You know, that the house of ivory that Ahab had built, and indeed. In the 20s and 1920s and 30s, archaeologists who were uh, working at Samaria, at ancient Samaria, um, discovered all kinds of ivory figurines and carvings and just scraps of ivory. We don't know if they actually were part of the palace. They, they could have been uh, other um, wealthy uh, individuals. But um, this fits right in line with what was found um, at that uh, archae- uh, archaeological site. But the ivory points to something else, and it tells us that the kingdom was actually quite prosperous um, at some point, that this is a sign of prosperity. 
We know that Ahab had multiple palaces, that he populated Jezreel with chariots and horses. He was a skilled builder, uh, meaning that, you know, we say skilled builder, it means he did a good job of commissioning builders to build on his behalf. He's credited with expanding and fortifying the ancient cities of Hazor, uh, Megiddo, and Tel Dan. He possibly rebuilt Jericho, uh, which, as we had read, was uh, uh, prohibited by, by God. We know from outside sources that Ahab fought alongside. So you recall he had these two battles against the Syrians at Samaria and Aphek. Between those two battles and his death, uh, there was, you know, that was three years in between, um, uh, and closer to the end, he, Ahab, joined his army with um, uh, an alliance of 12 kings, um, led probably by Ben-Hadad to the north. But they fought uh, the Assyrian emperor, the, the king by the name of Shalmaneser III. They fought him at Karkar, and they fought him to a standstill. And the reason we know anything about this is because of the Assyrians. The Assyrians kept really great records, and they list these 12 kings, and included in that list is Ahab. And it, it shows that Ahab actually supplied the most chariots, about half of the total chariots involved from the other side, roughly 2,000 according to uh, the Assyrian records, and then he supplied 10,000 infantry. They fought him to a standstill, um, and then that, I think, you know, you can imagine the pride swelling up in Ahab, which ultimately led to um, uh, this failed attempt to, to recover Ramoth-Gilead. All this is to say that from a worldly perspective, Ahab was actually a powerful, prosperous, consequential king. And yet when we come to the end of his life, <laughs> all that the prophet has time for, it's just, you know, okay, so we all know Ahab did a lot. You can, and if you want to, you can go read about that. You can go to the, uh, the libraries um, and read about this in, in the Samaria Times. You can, you, know, you can go to the archives and look it up um, or Google it. Um, that, that's the sort of, it's, there's a, almost a dismissive quality given by First Kings about all these achievements that the world would look at and say, Wow, what a, you know, this was a really important king. This, this king really accomplished a lot. And yet God, you know, through his prophet, it just seems like I I've barely have any time. I'll just mention it in case you're interested. It wasn't completely worthless, but um, from God's vantage point, it didn't ultimately matter. It didn't ultimately matter. And so in this respect, verse 39 is just really significant. God's word is telling us that what the world finds so important really isn't all that important to God. He almost ignores telling us about Ahab's achievements. And this should put, you know, cause us to pause. Um, because again, you know, building projects and expansions and prosperity and military victories— I mean, these are all things, they're, they're good things. We're not saying they're bad things. That they're worth celebrating. But they're not necessarily the things that are of first importance. They are blessings. Uh, David Brooks, and I think I mentioned this before, but in his book, The Road to Character, the best part is just the introduction to that book. Um, 
But he describes these kinds of items, these kinds of achievements as resume builders. These are the things that look good, you know, when we're putting a bio together or when we're putting a resume together and we're looking uh, for a new career or a new job. But they're not necessarily the kinds of things that you pay much attention to at a funeral. They're not the kinds of things that people really celebrate in terms of tributes and remembrances and a eulogy of what made a person great, especially within Christian services and Christian funerals. You know, in Christian um, uh, services and remembrances uh, of the dead, we celebrate, um, we'll mark on those things, of course, but what gets highlighted? Well, what gets highlighted is a person's faith, their love for God the way this love flowed through their lives, the way they connected with others, the way they blessed. They they not only loved God and they were faithful on a day-by-day basis, perhaps they showed courageous faith. Maybe they showed generosity. What we're talking about, what really matters is character. These deep-rooted elements of of Christ-like, godly, virtuous character. And that love of God and how it poured out into the lives of others. That's so often when we, we think about a person, we, we talk, oh, they were, they were just full of the Spirit. They were full of the Word of God. They were full of joy. They, they were willing to give you the shirt off their backs. They, were will, they just generously gave in an open-handed way. They had a concern for those who were in need. So what matters Well, I ask that question from the vantage point of 1 Kings. You know, working through 1 Kings, you know, what has been uh, one of the major themes? And one of the major themes, what matters in 1 Kings, what the prophet highlights is a person's respect for God, a person's honoring of God by honoring the word of God. What matters is a person's willingness to humble themselves before the Lord. And before the prophet of God, who represents God and his word, his proclamation. The, the people who, who really matter are those who make it their highest priority to love God by being faithful in their obedience to the will and word of God. Their love for the Lord, in New Testament terms, their love for Christ is proven in, in the way they stand underneath the authority of God's word. Let me just read a couple scripture passages along these lines. Psalm 119, um, verses 97 and following. Oh, how I love your law, the psalmist writes. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And then hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In his telling of the the wise and the foolish man, you know, the wise man who built his, uh, his house on the rock, Jesus concludes this. 
in this way. Every, that everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Well, what's the rock? It's hearing and putting into practice the word of God, the word of Christ. And the way this gets played out in the life of Ahab is that Ahab is, excuse me, exhibit A of someone who fails to honor God, to honor his word. He was the foolish man. Moving from King Ahab, we're confronted with a longer but still relatively brief record concerning the reign of the godly king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. Uh, Jehoshaphat is a man who loved God. He sincerely wanted to live for God. He did much good in the name of God. But nevertheless, there's a mixed record with King Jehoshaphat. Okay, so that's, and, and, and this final, um, uh, these 10 verses that are dedicated to King Jehoshaphat, that's what we see is, is that there's a little bit of a mixture here with his reign. Though overall, he's considered one of uh, the great godly kings um, uh, of the northern kingdom. He figures right in with Asa and then uh, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Jehoshaphat, um, we learn right away, uh, he comes to uh, the throne in the fourth year of King Ahab. He also has a lengthy reign, um, 25 years. We learn um, in verse 43, we see he's commended. Just, it says, he walked in all the way of Asa, a godly king, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then we, we read in verse 46, and from the land, he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. Jehoshaphat did away with the most egregious forms of, of false worship. And, and here's what you've got to know. You know, you're like, how, how in the world could this false worship have, have been part of Asa's godly kingdom? That's surprising, right? But see, false worship is like weeds, it doesn't go away. It springs from our hearts. And as long as we have fallen, idolatrous hearts, you're going to find false worship. But Jehoshaphat was godly, and he went after the most egregious forms. Uh, later in First Chronicles, First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles dedicates a lot of space, roughly four chapters, uh, to King Jehoshaphat. Um, and in Chronicles, we, we see some other truths about him. He went after the, the um, Asherim, these, apparently these pillars or these figurines um, that were often used uh, in the worship of Asherah. He also, um, at, right at the beginning of his reign, in the third year or so, he commissions like this nationwide back-to-the-Bible movement. He commissions the priests and the Levites to go throughout all the towns of the south of Judah and all they're, they're commanded to do is to teach the people the law of God. It was this great uh, renewal period early on in the reign of Jehoshaphat. 
But with all this said, there were a few ways in which Jehoshaphat fell short. And, and we're told uh, right away in verse 43, yet the high places, okay, these kind of places, either they were, um, uh, they were worshiping God on these high places, Yahweh, or in some cases, it was also connected with these kind of idolatrous forms of worship. Either way, um, we're just told this, that yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. See, this is a false form of worship, not the most egregious perhaps. But again, it sounds as if, you know, as Jehoshaphat's reign went on, he grew a little slack in his dedication to safeguarding the proper and acceptable worship in Jerusalem and throughout the land. We also read this in the very next verse, verse 44. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now, on the face of it, that's not a bad thing. You know, peace is a good thing. But in the context here, um, we saw what happened in the very previous passage where, you know, Ahab, because of this alliance, drags Jehoshaphat in this uh, uh, ill-begotten battle against the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead. It almost leads to Jehoshaphat's death because of this alliance. As we go into 2 Chronicles, it becomes explicit that this peace was more than just um, getting, you know, being a good neighbor. If that's what it was, this wouldn't be a problem. But this peace went beyond this to an alliance that Jehoshaphat had made first with Ahab and then with Ahab's um, sons, uh, Ahaziah and Joram. This peace um, was, was uh, the, the chronicles are critical of this peace uh, that was made between Jehoshaphat and the wicked north. On his way back from Ramoth-Gilead, our second chronicles in chapter 19, verse 2, we read this. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Even worse for Jehoshaphat is that part of this treaty alliance that he makes with Ahab, it included uh, an arranged marriage between the daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, and the son of, um, uh, of Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. Now, over time, um, and we read this in 2 Kings, so we're, the, the writer is going to come back to this situation And it says that, and he, um, this is with respect to Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. Why? For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So here you have Jehoshaphat, a godly king. He loves the law of God. He loves the word of God. He loves God. But strangely, there's like this huge blind spot in his life. And it has to do with the the politics of international relations. There's like this whole area of foreign policy that Jehoshaphat is just going to govern by what seems best in his own eyes, what seems pragmatic. And it seems like he just kind of closes this entire area of his life off 
from the direction and the lordship of God, from the lordship of Yahweh. The result of this is not only does Athaliah corrupt his son, or maybe his heart was already corrupt, but she doesn't encourage any godliness there. Let's put it that way. He's evil, and it's suggested that it's in part because of this marriage. But then Jehoram dies, and Athaliah becomes like this antichrist figure who tries to wipe out the entire, um, all the descendants, the, the male descendants of her husband who would be uh, in line for the throne so that she can take over. And then what does she want to do? She wants to um, establish uh, uh, idolatry and, and idolatrous worship in the land of Judah. It is a disaster and a nightmare within the history of the southern kingdom. Now, all this to say, this is heartbreaking. And and all this is to just point out that the legacy of Jehoshaphat is mixed. Positively, Jehoshaphat was on the whole a good and godly king. He's commended in this direction. And yet there were these areas of, of his life where he falls far short. And just to come back to this little brief record, did you catch at the end of this, there's this little, you know, this strange little report about these ships that Jehoshaphat had built. He built these ships so that they could travel to this land. We don't know where this land was. It was just called Ophir. But it was a, a land rich, and it had jewels and, and, and um, uh, precious minerals and gold. And he was building these ships to go to Ophir to return with gold. But this is um, uh, an endeavor of Jehoshaphat that we read. It never gets off the ground because the ships are destroyed shortly after they're built. They never uh, even set sail. Now, that's a strange detail to to add as part of the record of Jehoshaphat. Why is that there? Well, I think in part what it's designed to do is it's designed to trigger, it's, it's supposed to connect us to an earlier reign. During the, the glorious time of the reign of Solomon, this is precisely what Solomon did. He built ships of Tarshish. He sent them to Ophir to come back with gold, and they came back with enormous quantities of gold. And what the writer is trying to show us, I think, is he's saying, here's Jehoshaphat. He had the opportunity for a glorious kingdom, something along the lines of Solomon. But in part, you know, just after he describes some of his shortcomings, this alliance, this peace with Ahab, he goes into this whole thing about shipbuilding, and they never even, you know, it stalled before it even set sail. Almost to say, Jehoshaphat, what could have been? It could have been like Solomon. It could have been glorious, but it fell short. It didn't even come close to the glorious um, reign of Solomon. Putting it in, in terms of Jesus. So Jehoshaphat, he's in heaven. He, he's, he's a godly king. There's much to celebrate and commend about him. But there were these blind spots. And it's as if, you know, the, the story, the parable that Jesus tells about the sower and the seed. You know, most of the seed falls on soil that turns out to be um, uh, dead, spiritually dead. There's no fruit that comes from the growth and in the shallow and in the weedy and, and the hard soils. But then he talks about the seeds that fall into the good soil and, and it grows up. And Jesus describes 
the, 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 the vine or the, the growth that, that comes from that seed as, as some, as in terms of people, some bore 30 fold, some bore 60 fold, and some bore 100 fold. And Jehoshaphat w- was a true believer, but he doesn't make it to the 100 fold. He's more like 30 or 60 fold in terms of being fruitful, in terms of of having this godly legacy left behind. And it strikes me that this is a question that's being put before us. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy do we and I want to leave? Our desire is to be not just a true follower of Christ, but our, and our desire should be to be the kind of, of disciple that's described as bearing 100-fold fruit. Not just 30, not just 60, at least to aim for 100-fold in being a fruitful um, uh, believer. I hope that's the desire for everyone here. Now, we know, please don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that um, that, that any of us uh, uh, ideally, uh, well, that any of us will ever achieve perfection. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what I am talking about. There, there's, um, the truth is, there's no escaping sin this side of heaven. Every day we are going to groan as we fight that old sinful nature within our hearts, and within our uh, lives. Perfection is an impossibility in this life. Uh, We're going to be asking for God's forgiveness and mercy every day until the day we die. But going forward, our aim should still be to be that fruitful follower of Jesus, the most fruitful we can be. And the Apostle Paul gives us some encouragement, some direction on how to pursue this fruit. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting those failures, forgetting the, the places where we fell short, he's saying, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he continues, let those of us who are mature think this way. We want to be aiming wherever we're at in life, young, middle-aged, old. We forget what lies behind. We press on towards what lies ahead, towards the prize of the upward call of God. Then we as a church, what kind of legacy do we want to leave as a church? I hope that we as a church would leave a legacy of joy, of people who love God, who love each other, who love following Christ, who love the drama, who love the adventure, who recognize we're in a fallen world. We're going to meet with lots of obstacles, lots of resistance, lots of challenges. And part of the drama is overcoming by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As a church, we want to pursue healthy households, healthy families, strong marriages, mature children. We want to be strong in our relationships with one another and with the people around us. We want to be the kind of countercultural light and salt that reaches out into the world with the love of Christ and with the truth of Christ. You know, we want there to be kind of this paradox that as we reach out, people see us and they see something that they want and something that's attractive. And at the same time, they see something that's also hard. (laughs) That there's this kind of paradoxical um, uh, 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 light and salt, something that confronts, something that is challenging, that that, uh, confronts sin, that looks to change. We want to be about equipping the saints. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul again says, what is it, the, role, the purpose of the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain, this should be our goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we long for, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead. Well, let's pray. Most gracious Lord, you know the tasks that await us, the challenges that may confront us, and the weakness of our endeavors. And with all that, we ask, Lord, that you'd protect us, that you would guide us in all events And places, Lord, may we find ourselves surrounded by your power and your love. In your service, may we know the joy of true living and always grow into the likeness of the perfect man, your son, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.